Well, if you don't mind, let's turn together to Ephesians chapter 1. This is a, another important day for us as a church family as we begin a new teaching series here. It is our custom, of course, if you're uh, if you've been around here for a while, you know, to work verse by verse through books of the Bible. And so we are going to begin that now with the book of Ephesians. A number of years ago, whenever we were starting the church, I intended initially to go through Ephesians. That was going to be the first book. Of course, it's a letter, but a short book. It was going to be the first book that we covered together as a church, but we altered course Felt like it was important at the very beginning for us to spend time together centering on, focusing upon Jesus as our Savior and Lord. And so we started with the book of John. After that, after a number of years, we went to the book of Romans. We've now been through Genesis, and now we begin the book of Ephesians. There's been a lot of other things sprinkled in there from time to time, but now we come to this important letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus. This letter is an incredibly important one because of its content or because of its message. We will see in just a bit the basic structure of the letter, and I don't want that to feel like a classroom setting. I want you to see the vital link that Paul presents in this unique letter of the gospel and how it should affect that we the way that we live in the here and now. I heard a well-known commentator, pastor, a number of years ago comment on the past four decades of his ministry. It was about ten years or so ago, so his ministry is now... And he was asked, what has surprised you about your time in vocational ministry? And his answer, without getting into the weeds, was basically this. He has been shocked at how frequently he has had to come back to and defend the gospel itself. I am a student of church history. I love it, not just because it relates to my job, but because it's fascinating some of the stories that you find over the past two millennia, 20 centuries of church history, are truly fascinating. But as you look back over the past 2,000 years of church history, what you find again and again echoes what that pastor said, that we find that the church again and again falls away from the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It does that basically in two ways. It falls away from it doctrinally, it fails to teach it, and therefore eventually fails to believe it. And the second way in which the church falls away from the gospel is it fails to see its vital link for everyday living. And as the intention of our elders here, and I know this is in keeping with the way that you feel and believe, that we must not ever do that that we must stay very much moored to the gospel of Jesus Christ, both doctrinally, because it is the hope for life, and morally, or hopefully, if you will. That is to say, we, we hope in the gospel of Jesus, 
not just for the celestial city that is to come, but for the here and now, for transformation, we could say for our joy. The storyline of the Bible is essentially that God made the world to enjoy him and to reflect his great glory. But he gave humanity the latitude to decide whether or not they would follow his way and thereby thereby find their joy in him. As we know from the very beginning of the story, as the first humans were created, they eventually, in short order, chose to go their own way, out of pride and out of unbelief. They fundamentally believed that they could find happiness in another fashion. And out of pride, they tried to hack their own way. But as God had warned them, they would fall into sin and would die. Or, in Adam and Eve's case, though they organically kept breathing and their hearts kept beating and the synapses of their brain kept firing, they died because they were separated from God and thereby the whole race was plunged into sin. And ever since, we've been living with the fallout of the curse. But that, of course, was not the end of the story. Because God in his great grace had anticipated this very thing. And as we will learn fundamentally from this letter to the church in Ephesus, God had made a plan to remedy the fall of man. That he came to the fallen rebels, and though he spoke words of cursing, more importantly, he spoke words of promise and of life. That redemption would come, that renewal and restoration could be enjoyed, and it would come at the cost, as we would learn later, of his own son, who would be the redeemer, the seed of the woman, who would rescue fallen humanity. Eventually, of course, that redeemer would come, and his name would be Jesus. He would be Emmanuel, God with us, obeying all of the laws that Adam should have kept, but all of Adam's posterity did not keep. And thereby, of course, were cursed. But not only did he keep all of the laws of God and thereby achieve righteousness, he died in our place, taking the punishment that we deserved. And the central focus point of all of humanity was the life and death of Jesus Christ. In fact, that is the central feature of the story of the scriptures, the life and the death of Jesus. And everything looked forward to it And everything looks back upon it. And so now as the church of Jesus Christ, he is the head of this body, we look to him as the hope of this church and indeed the hope of the world. And if Jesus is the center of human history, and if he is the center of the story of the scriptures, God's revealed word to humanity, it behooves us, it places responsibility upon us to happily and submissively come back to his word week after week, of course privately and in our family time, day after day, and explore this central feature of the story of humanity, of the story of the scriptures, and explore how we can indeed find hope both for the here and for the hereafter. And so for the coming months, we will 
spend time going verse by verse through the book of Ephesians, like a sponge wringing out every drop that we can discern so that we can once again hope in the gospel of Jesus and find its implications for everyday living. I say to you with love and joining together with you with the same propensity, the same tendencies, that because of our pride and because of our unbelief, because those sins, those diseases have been passed down to us. And, and even after we are in Christ, the disease of sin still courses through our veins in some senses at least. And, and though we can say no to sin, though its power has been broken for us, its presence is still with us. And so like you, I have a tendency to, in pride and unbelief, fall away. To look for other messiahs, but they are not real. They masquerade as messiahs, offering to us hope. And it is amazing how we can turn not only to evil things, but to good things to bring ourselves satisfaction and hope. We've done that this week. We can take the best of things and make them into ultimate things. Careers. Families. Even religious pursuits. You see, when it comes down to it, at the end of the day, our hope is not in a political candidate. Our hope is not in a slate of justices which may or may not be put on a court. Our hope is not in the law of the land being changed. Those things have their place, and as citizens of this kingdom that we call the United States of America, we have a role to play in that. But we are citizens of another kingdom, brothers and sisters, one that will far outlast this present one in which we live. And therefore, whether a king or president is placed over us that we don't like, and that is going to happen, no matter what, we're going to get one we don't like. We have a king who rules over all, and he's never been selfish. He's never done anything evil in word or deed. He's never lied. He's completely trustworthy. He has never hoarded things to himself in pride. He has never promoted himself in such a sense that he selfishly has sought to set up his own kingdom. In fact, he was tempted to to set up his own kingdom apart from the plan of the Father through temptation of the devil, and he resisted this. We serve a king who, who not only has never sinned, but he, he laid down his life for sinners. And so I say to many of you whose hearts are unsettled today, whose minds are elsewhere, we have a great king, and he is our great savior, and he is your friend, and he is your brother, and he is your creator, and he is your Lord. And long after the kingdoms of the world fade away, his kingdom will be set up here in a new and perfect world. And we look forward to that day, but it's not here yet. And so while we await that day and we live in the here and now, it's important for us to remember that the gospel of hope that has been given to us in Jesus grants us unshakable assurance. And so we will explore that together in the coming days. In the verses that Josh read to us a bit ago from chapter 1, we find a few times that 
God has brought redemption to his people that his glorious grace might be praised. And that is my hope, that is my prayer, that as we explore this letter together, that we will live to the praise of his glorious grace, that we will enjoy it, and that we will indeed reflect it. As I've already said to you, Paul wrote this letter. Though this may not interest you, the details that I'm about to give you, I want to try to make them as applicable as possible, so try to hang with me for the next couple of minutes before we get to some more applicational stuff. Because we are opening this letter, it's important for us to lay a little bit of context. Paul probably wrote this letter in the early 7th decade of the 1st century. Paul would likely have died just a few short years later. This church was incredibly important to Paul. If you don't mind, turn with me to Acts chapter 19. Paul was not directly responsible for every church over which he had responsibility, but he was responsible for a number. That is, he planted them, if you will, on his own. Paul, as we learn from Acts chapters 19 through 20, Luke tells us that that Paul spent three years in this region. It was uncommon for Paul to spend that amount of time in this region. We find in chapter 19, verse 1, Luke records it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And John said, John baptized you with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. They began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. It was an inauspicious beginning. But Paul found some people who at least were amenable to hearing about the gospel. They had learned about the coming Messiah through John's teaching and somehow had made it to Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey. He explains to them the gospel in fullness, and they believe and are baptized, and here's your first core group of your church in Ephesus. Then Paul continued in the city and made sure that he preached the gospel as much as he could throughout the land. In fact, this section tells us that all of Asia, or all of the surrounding region, in Paul's time spent there in Ephesus for those three years, heard the gospel. So Paul was bold. Paul's preaching and influence was prolific. As more and more people came to faith, more and more probably house churches were planted in the region. Ephesus was an important city. It was a large city. One of the seven ancient wonders of the world was there, the temple to Artemis. And Paul went to these centers of influence so the gospel would radiate out from them. Paul leaves Ephesus for a while at the beginning of chapter 20, and then he comes back to Ephesus, or at least sends to the Ephesian elders to come meet him, as we see in chapter 20, verse 17. And he says to them in verse 18, if you'd like to follow along with me, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public 
and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul made sure, through great effort, even at threat to his own life, that he preached the gospel over and over and over. Because in the seventh decade of the first century, and now in the second decade of the 21st century, we have the same problem that has persisted in humanity for so long. And that is that we think in our pride, and we want in our pride to achieve our own righteousness. But brothers and sisters, Jesus has already accomplished that for us. And so Paul preached Christ again and again and again. Not only to unbelievers, but to believers alike, that they might be grounded and rooted in the hope of the church, which is Jesus Christ who created it in the first place. In verse 25 of Acts 20, Paul says, Now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Paul knows that he's going to go down to Jerusalem. He's going to be arrested and eventually put on trial. He says in verse 26, he's innocent of their blood and the blood of the people of the surrounding region because he's preached the gospel. Then he says in verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So Paul warns the church, the Ephesian elders, the leaders of these house churches, which made up the larger church of the area, to be careful because error would creep in. At the time of Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, probably Paul is under house arrest, imprisonment in Rome. He would be released later and eventually imprisoned again, and then as church history records, beheaded for the sake of the gospel. We learn about Ephesus not only from Acts chapters 19 through 20, but also from First and Second Timothy. We won't take time to turn there today, but Paul's protege, his child in the faith, the man into whom he invested so much time, he sent to Ephesus. That is to say, Paul cared so much about Ephesus and was so concerned about them staying true to the gospel because of the error that would creep in and because of the tendency to fall away from the gospel that he sent the best person he could send. And he wrote two letters to him that we have recorded here in our New Testaments and told Timothy as a young pastor how to lead that church. The central feature of his letters to Timothy is that Timothy is to maintain commitment to the word of God because as we learned a couple of weeks ago the church itself is the household of God is the pillar of truth if that pillar of truth is to stand and to switch our metaphors if it is to shine in the dark place we call the world they must be committed to the word of God to the gospel of Jesus Christ how did the church at Ephesus fare after Paul's influence and probably after Timothy's influence. Turn with me, please, to Revelation chapter 2. We don't have as much evidence or as much information about a number of the churches that we know about in the New Testament as we do from Ephesus. 
But because we have Acts chapters 19 to 20 and 1 and 2 Timothy and the letter to the Ephesian church, and of course these verses that we are about to read together from Revelation 2, we know quite a bit, which means that the church of Ephesus was very important, both in its beginning and how it fared later on. Jesus spoke to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 through the pen of John. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. We won't take time to recreate all this context, but basically this means that Jesus is taking care of his church, including Ephesus. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Pause for a moment. The Ephesian elders and Timothy had done their job. They had taught the church at Ephesus to be doctrinally precise. Let's read further. I know, verse 3, you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake. You have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you abandon the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus, who watches over his church, promises that as we hang on to him, he will hang on to us. And our eternal destiny is one of hope and joy. But though the church of Ephesus had been so doctrinally correct, they had, they had stood, they had held on, and some way or another they had lost their first love. Scholars differ over what that meant. It could mean that they had lost their burning love for God. It could mean that they had lost their zealous love for one another. Some commentators combine those two things because there is seemingly an inextricable, undeniable link in the scriptures between love for God and love for people. So just to take that course for this morning, perhaps Jesus is saying to the church in Ephesus through John's pen, and that would have been in the 90s AD, the 10th decade of the first century, so maybe like 30 years or so after Paul wrote the initial letter to the church in Ephesus, that though they were doctrinally precise, they, they had their theological ducks in a row, they no longer loved God with the burning love with which they had first loved him. And perhaps because of that, and inevitably, they had ceased to love each other in the same fashion. And so we come to the book of Ephesians together as a church family in an effort to make sure that we are moored to good gospel doctrine, but also so that we might love God with all of our hearts. And because of that, that we might love each other with a deep and passionate, sacrificial love. And that is what we will find, brothers and sisters, as we explore the letter to the church in Ephesus, that we are to love God because he first loved us. And implicationally, we are to love each other with a fierce and undying, sacrificial love. Here are the central messages of Ephesians. First... In chapters 1 through 3, we have been reconciled to God by Christ. 
and have been granted unfathomable privileges as his ransomed people. Through Christ, we have been brought back to God. He is our peace. And through the Spirit, we have been sealed until the day of redemption. And while we wait, we enjoy unfathomable riches. As Josh read to us earlier, God planned this before the foundation of the world, that we would be adopted into the family of God. We who were rebels would become children. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, verse 2, but God made us alive together, granting us faith to believe. He has brought all peoples, Jews and Gentiles alike, into the family of God. As we find at the end of chapter 3, Paul prays that the Ephesian church would know that God loves them with an unfathomable love. He says in chapter 3, verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit and your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, remember what Jesus warned the church in Ephesus about in Revelation 2, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And so Paul wanted the church in Ephesus to know that they had been granted great privileges in Christ. And so it behooves us, it it calls us, the gospel calls us to continue to reflect again and again upon the great privileges that we have in Christ. And this is Paul's custom Paul's custom in his writings is to make sure that all the churches to which he wrote understood the central message of the gospel. That it is because of Christ that we have been brought back to God. In the second half of the letter, in chapters 4 through 6, Paul argues that in light of his gracious love, we have the privilege and responsibility to live for his glory. Prior to our redemption, we were enemies of God. We were were dead. We were destined for damnation and wrath. But because of his gracious love, we now have the privilege to, to live as new creatures, new image bearers, restored by Christ. And because of this, a great responsibility. You see, what's going on in Ephesians is Paul is showing how the curse continues to be reversed how Christ is making all things new God made the world for his glory and he made people to enjoy him because of sin that was marred that plan was derailed but but God's plans will always come to pass and he had a greater plan to bring restoration through the world and to display his gracious love. And as we've explored together before, if there had been no sin, grace and love and redemption and mercy would have been merely theoretical. But because we have tasted the woe of sin, because we have experienced the effects of the curse, because even still as the redeemed people of God We long for full and final redemption. We understand grace. We know what it's like to be be recipients of mercy. 
And because we live in a world that is hostile and selfish and broken and turned in on itself, we know what love looks like. It looks like Christ. And so, my brothers and sisters, you who struggle and long intuitively for something better, that nagging notion that something isn't quite right here, Jesus is making it right. We have the opportunity to live new lives, imperfect though they will be, for the glory of God, enjoying the presence of God together. And that is an important component of this letter and helps hold together the first and second portions. That God has reconciled to himself a people Yes, individuals, but, but brought together into this thing we call the church. Jesus has ransomed a people. And we are a local expression of that people. As we will learn in the second portion of the letter most clearly, we are to live together for his glory. Showing each other what love looks like. Helping each other taste mercy. You know what mercy looks like? Mercy looks like a brother or sister releasing you from the bondage of debt when you have sinned against them. You know what transformation looks like? Transformation looks like each of us, formerly hostile to God, living in opposition to Him, coming together and instead encouraging each other along the way that Jesus is better that he is our greatest treasure, and because of his grace, we can pursue him together. Families change. Individuals change. Morals change. And as the people of God that live in a hostile culture, we need each other desperately, resting in the grace of Christ that has brought us together and living together in unity for his glory and for our mutual joy. Ephesians will point us to these truths and far more. What will we learn along the way? Well, first, what did God, Father, Son, and Spirit do to ensure our salvation? And what bearing does this have on our assurance as His people? We will explore this together. Not what do we have to do to earn salvation, what role do we play, but, but what did God do? And how does this bring us assurance as we serve him and live before him? What does the future hold for us? And how should this affect our worship in the here and now? You see, the promises of Jesus were not just past promises. They hold out for us a future hope. And we trust in his future grace. How should this sustain us in the here and the now? We are short-sighted people. We as Americans live for the moment. But we have to learn to remember, to deliberately look forward to hope in the gospel that will come to full completion. Thirdly, what bearing does the gospel have on the unity of our church family? If it's true that the church at Ephesus had lost their love for God a few decades after Paul wrote this later, and thereby, perhaps, had lost their love for each other. 
How does a renewed love for God, which of course is initiated by God himself, again, we love him because he first loved us, how should that affect the way that we love each other? You know as well as I that that fragile community is the normal experience for most churches. Or perhaps to put that more simply, friendships, relationships, they're difficult. Community is fragile. You know why? Because you're a sinner. And so am I. And you know what happens when you, when you put sinners in close proximity to one another? They scar each other. They hurt each other. They disappoint each other. They fail each other. They prove to be unfaithful to one another. But because the promise of the gospel is for not just now, but for the hereafter, that is to say, God will love us for forever, we have the responsibility to hang in there together. And we will see again and again in this letter as we take time through it, the gospel has very, very important things to say to us in the way that we live together. Fourthly, how can we persevere through this very difficult life when we grow weary and our faith falters? How do the promises of God, in other words, sustain us when our souls feel very thin? Some of you are there today. Some of you feel very thin. Your soul feels thin perhaps because you're depressed. Perhaps your soul feels thin because you're sinning unrepentantly. Perhaps some of you are struggling through very difficult trials, emotionally, physically. Some of your relationships at home right now are pretty brittle. Some of you have grown bored. I think that that is a great danger for most of us to grow bored with the gospel of Jesus. In an age where we can microwave our food in seconds, learn about goings-on in the world and moments on Twitter, we always want something new. We want something different. We want something to, to thrill us in the moment. But how do we hang on to the central feature the hope of the church which has lasted now for two millennia and how should this help us when our faith is faltering so i say to you tired weary christian god has a word for you in the coming months next how are we to practically live together as god's people especially when we all still struggle so much with sin that is to say what should what should body life look like how do you live together under the authority of elders? What role do the elders play in, in helping equip you? And after all, because sin is so inevitable and so difficult, can a church like ours really make it? Next, what is the mission of the church and what role does each of us have to play in seeing it come to pass? For too long, the evangelical church, particularly in the West, has placed too much focus on the elders, too much focus on the leaders that Christ has left for the church, and 
have not placed enough emphasis on the role that they are to play. And, of course, in many senses, that's the fault of the elders. They have not trained and equipped their people well to do the work of ministry. If the goal of the church is the glory of God, or in other words, if we are to live for the glory of God and and to represent Christ to each other and to the world, how can we holistically do that if the responsibility for making disciples only rests with the few? We have talked for years about how discipleship is at the center of the mission of this church, but but how are we doing and, and how should we grow and change? A few more. What should Christian morality look like in a hostile culture such as ours? We are not the first culture to arise. Ours is not the first culture to arise that is hostile to Christianity. Many of us are guilty of what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. That is to say, as we look back, we think that everything that came before, like, 1960 was old and passe. But if you are a student of history, you understand that the church has existed in hostile cultures predominantly. And that's not just true historically for like the church in Ephesus, but it's true today. By and large, most Christians in 2016 live in cultures that are hostile to the message of the gospel. Many people, such as us, who face the unknown of the years to come, worry that we will lose the faith. But brothers and sisters, I want to say to you to take heart. The gospel thrives in hostility, and it could well be that the best days of the church lie ahead. Don't lose heart. Next. What should Christian families look like in an age marked by such upheaval and fragmentation? The family unit is is coming apart in our culture. How should we look different in such a culture? We'll explore that together. And lastly, what dangers exist for us along the path of our sojourn and how can we be prepared daily to face them? This is a difficult life. By all accounts. I think one of the things that happens along the way is you become a grown-up. And after you've been a grown-up for a while is you realize that life is really hard. And even on your pretty happy days, like when you're sitting on your deck around a fire looking at the leaves changing outside, knowing that the Buckeyes are on in a few hours, which didn't turn out so well for us yesterday. That even on your best of days, there's this nagging notion that things aren't quite right. Or perhaps a nagging question, a very simple question that goes like this, will we be okay? Will I be okay? There are many dangers, toils, and snares along this path that we walk together, but God has not left us alone, and he's provided us grace that we might continue on and sojourn well. We will come back to verses 1 and 2, but I want to just briefly mention a couple of things from the first two verses of Ephesians chapter 1, and then we will get into them in more detail next week. As I've already said, Paul wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus. He is an apostle, 
He's one set apart by God to, to write and to teach and to plant churches. He's a messenger from God. He's an ambassador from Christ. He wrote to the saints who are in Ephesus and those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And he has a word for them. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to leave you with a little bit of comfort today before we come back to these verses in detail next week. If you have trusted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, if he's your hope, if you're staking your claim on him today, you are a saint. Now, we don't mean that word, or we don't use that word in the way that it's often used today. When you see somebody who goes out and takes some money to uh, philanthropic calls or donuts and things to, to goodwill or it was nice to their neighbors or brings a meal when you're sick, you might say, well, you're just a saint. We use that word very loosely without great care and caution in our day. Paul meant something far more important when he used that word. These were people who were set apart to God. God had done the setting apart. Therefore, their sainthood did not depend on them being nice. Their sainthood did not depend on them being unselfish. Their sainthood depended on Christ. The opening to this letter, and likewise the end of the letter, Paul had a custom, it shows up here in Ephesians, to encourage the saints, those whom Christ had saved, those who trusted him and looked objectively to them to him for their hope. And he calls them saints. They were set apart to God. That is their identity. So my friends, though you have sinned, and though you will sin again, and though your soul may be thin, and though your faith may be faltering, and though you understandably recognize the inadequacies and deficiencies of, of every church, including this one, you belong to him. We belong to him. Notice that Paul did not write to one person. He wrote to the collective body. When Paul wrote this letter, it would have been read aloud to the body of the church in Ephesus, probably local house churches. And they would have heard those words together. The words would have, would have rung out in their ears you, collective people, the saints, together, seated here today, and I say to you now, 2,000 years later, you, collectively, part of this church family, the collective, set-apart people of God, those who are faithful in Christ Jesus because he's been faithful to you, grace to you, and peace. You can trust him. You can rest in him. You can trust that his grace is yours. As you've already said out loud today, if God did not spare his son from us, how will he not with him graciously give you all things? Is your financial future uncertain? Is your health threatened? Do you live many of your days in a lonely state? 
Do you fear the future as a citizen of this kingdom? Fear not. Hang on. Take heart. Because the grace of Almighty God, who made all things and sustains them by his power and gave you Jesus Christ, keeping all of his promises, will never, ever fail to keep his promises to you. You can rest in his grace. And because of this, you have peace. As we gather together on this Lord's Day, remembering the rest has been offered to us in Jesus, I call you, my brothers and sisters, as we close today, to be at peace. Objectively, if you have trusted Christ, you are at peace with God. You may not be at peace with your husband. You may not be at peace with your child or your neighbor. In some senses, you may not be at peace with yourself as you gaze inwardly and see things there that are ugly, that you don't like, and you wish would change. But if you are trusting Christ today, you have peace with God. And therefore, everything else pales in comparison. Peace horizontally with your neighbors or your loved ones or even inside your own heart comes and goes. But peace with God is objective and it never changes. So I say to you, you who are set apart by God in Christ here today, grace to you and peace to you. No amount of preaching, no amount of reading can do this for you. Only God can do that for you. And so now I am going to pray as we open up this letter as a church family. And I will pray, and I want you to pray along with me, that God would cause us in the days to come to, by faith, rest in his gracious promises and to be at peace. Let's pray together. Our Father, we give you thanks that you have given us Jesus Christ. And I pray for us as a church family that you would cause us to know the height, the breadth, the length, and the depth of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. We ask that in the coming days, that you will do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Things that we wouldn't even think to ask for according to the power at work within us. To you be glory in this church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. So Father, Grant your people peace as they rest in your grace. And in the coming weeks and months, as we explore this, this letter together with humility and submission, 
May we have expectant hearts. May you help us to understand the gospel in detail. But may it be more than that because the church at Ephesus understood the gospel but somehow lost their first love. So please, may we understand it, but do more than that for us. May our love for you be rekindled. May our love for one another grow grow more deeply. And as we rest in your love and as we extend it toward one another, cause us to be at peace. And though the world around us, perhaps, though it may have no tranquility, may, may it, Though it may not offer us any sort of hope or peace, may we be at peace. May we, may we be at rest. And may we learn to live together that way. So Father, for the sake of your name, for the glory of Jesus, and for the joy of your people, transform our hearts by the power of the gospel to be at rest and to enjoy you. So I ask in faith now, that you will change us in the coming months, that we will not be who we were as a result of our time together in this important portion of Scripture. By the power of your Spirit, transform us. We ask these things in faith. Only you can do them. And we believe that you are far more passionate for your glory and far more passionate for our joy than we will ever be. So please, by your grace, do this for us. Answer our prayers. We pray these things in faith, in the name of Jesus. Amen.